This show is supported by three awesome Bitcoin companies. The first is Shift Crypto. They make the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only hardware wallet. If you're new to Bitcoin and you're looking for a way to take self-custody of your Bitcoin, which you absolutely should be doing, this is a very good option. It's very easy to set up. It's very easy to use. Very slick interface. A great option to get you started on your self-custody journey. Visit shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapidfire to learn more about the product and get 5% off. Next up is the Bitcoin 2022 conference. The 2021 conference was amazing. One of the best experiences of my life. And it's going down again in Miami, April 6th to the 9th. But this time, instead of in Wynwood and a 13,000 person capacity, it's happening on Miami Beach and a 35,000 person capacity. I can't even begin to imagine how amazing it's going to be. There's always a ton of peripheral events and parties and extra stuff going on around the conference. And you get to meet so many awesome people at the conference itself. It really is tremendous. If you've never been to a Bitcoin conference before, this is the one to go to. So check out their website and at checkout, use the code RAPIDFIRE and get 10% off. And finally, the awesome people at bullbitcoin.com. If you're looking to buy Bitcoin in Canada, this is an amazing option. Have a look into them. They are a privacy-focused, non-custodial exchange, which means you buy Bitcoin through them, and then the Bitcoin goes directly to your own custody solution, which in my opinion is the most secure way to purchase Bitcoin. Also soon, they'll be offering a white glove service for international clients. So for people that may seem that the setting up their own custody solution is a little bit daunting, they'll be there to hold your hand to get you set up in the best way possible. So keep track of their website for updates on when those services will be available. What's up, guys? I'm trying out a bit of a different format with today's show. Uh, and this has been inspired by my friend uh, Robert Breedlove, who's introduced a kind of new format to podcasting. Instead of the standard one, two, three hour singular episode, he's having these f much longer multiple episode series with uh, the guests that, that he has on. So he may have someone on for 90 minutes to two hours and do you know, 5, 10, 15. I think the longest series he's done so far has been with, has been with Michael Saylor, and I think that's on episode number 17. And although initially, I mean, of course, it sounds like a lot, but it really, it really gives you the time to dig into a lot of the most challenging or most meaningful topics that uh, seem to be emerging around Bitcoin and that I'm incredibly interested in exploring. And I didn't really realize that I wanted to, that this, that such a format would appeal to me until having tried it out in this initial one. And I can already tell that I'm going to like it because it does kind of dial down the, the pressure to move through a conversation, you know, because of time constraints. And it really allows you, if you want to stay on one particular topic, you know, for a very long time to try to really grasp it and understanding and see how it fits into the larger picture, then you have the time to do so. So I decided to give it a whirl and I couldn't think of a better person to start it with than my good friend Joel, or also known as Untapped Growth. He's doing a lot of amazing things in the space. You may know him from previous episodes that I've done around decentralized ranching or regenerative agriculture, which he's done a lot of work and has been educating a lot of people about. And he's also um, an incredible thinker, for lack of a better term. We spent, uh, we've talked on the podcast a bunch. We spent a bunch of time together face-to-face -to -face in Miami, and it was just 
such a pleasure just to hang out, work out, go for walks uh, with him and talk about all these things that are emerging in our minds, partially as a result of Bitcoin, partially things that we've been mulling over for a long time, but which seem to be converging in and around Bitcoin and the culture that's emerging around Bitcoin. And so I thought he would be a perfect person to get this uh, series kicked off with. Um, it's a new format for me. I'm not entirely sure how to engage these, you know, these conversations or how to how the flow of such a long conversation goes yet. So I'm anticipating that I'll learn and refine, you know, my ability to engage in these conversations as we go. Um, so if the first few are a little bit messy or if there's too much jumping around or stuff like that, then, you know, I apologize. And I hope that not only will these conversations be entertaining and interesting, but I'm really hoping that, you know, they'll help facilitate my understanding and clarity around these topics and also my ability to engage in them. So, um, yeah, more to come from Joel. Not so, not sure yet how many episodes there will be. I think we're just going to keep finding times, pressing record, having these conversations until we run out of things to talk about, which could be a very long time. And I'll start introducing or start, I'll, I'll start up other series um, in the next couple of weeks as well. And uh, yeah, feel free to let me know what you think of them. And one final note, in my current setup, I'm confined to a fairly echoey room to do these recordings. And lately, I've been feeling the urge to stand up and walk around while having these conversations and not be seated the whole time. I don't really know why. It's just it doesn't the energy and the, and the thoughts seem to flow better when I'm moving around. So the audio quality is not the greatest, um, but hopefully I can find a better solution uh, as the series and the podcast progresses. So hopefully it's not too much of a, an annoyance. Anyways, let's get started. All right. So we're kicking off our super series. John and I both showed up shirtless. This is about what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do you actually know where my Twitter handle came from originally? Have I ever told you that story? I feel like we might have covered it in Miami, but tell me the story again. <laughs> It seems like a good place to dive in what we want to do here with our series. So originally, my Twitter handle was built after coming out of that health crisis. I don't know how much I told you about that. Dealing with like autoimmune conditions, brain getting broken, having to claw my way back from death's door. And all the things I discovered in that process about untapped human potential, right? Of what happens, what you're really capable of of creating real value, but it started from a paradigm of solving real problems that seem unsolvable when you enter into a place of integrating your heart, your mind, your body, and your spirit all in synchronicity and allowing each of them to function in a flow state with the other so that when you have that spot where you run against a wall and your brain can't, can't figure something out, how do you get to the next paradigm shift or the next right question and then unlock the capacity to get your brain actually solving details and gathering data again because you don't know what to do next right so untapped growth was this whole idea of human synthesis of maximized potential through bringing together an integration of being right but it's so funny because i just kept that as i started as i found bitcoin and wanted to listen on bitcoin twitter and it just became more and more true so I never actually felt like I needed to make a new handle because, I mean, what is Bitcoin but 
synthesis of integration of unlocking maximal potential, not just across the individual, but across the macro. And that's what you and I always jam about, right? It's like, where does the spiritual, the emotional, the intellectual, and the physical all collide so that we're capable of crafting this new world we're all dreaming about? Like, how do we define the landscape of the new world we're dreaming about? And what do we do to live into it versus living in a paradigm of being like kind of broken slaves where we just plow along with the system? I think that fits the ethos of what you and I both were feeling we wanted to talk about is how do we ascend into being sons and kings? How do we become beings who can exist in this higher plane of, of consciousness that unlock more potential, not just in our own lives, but as we collaborate together and building a new world? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about what's happening now is everything is being like recapitulated, redefined. You know, like th this is, when, our, when we change our, our perception to such a degree, right? When we change our relationship to time, potential, each other, work, energy, all of these things, then it naturally requires a reframing and a reconstruction of pretty much everything else. And that's what, you know, that's what's so interesting about this to me is that like, you, know, you could say in one way, it's about more than just money, or you could say money is about more than just you know, facilitating exchange, right? There's far more regarding perception wrapped up in what money actually is. And when you change it to such a dramatic degree that we are currently doing, you know, one of the, so perception gets changed enough that you need to kind of reassess everything, but also when something is one so profound and impactful, i.e. money, and it's also so mysterious, like what Bitcoin actually is seems to have an almost infinite surface area, hence the kind of the rabbit hole metaphor that we use for it, that means that you, you, the landscape that you, you search and you explore in order to try to comprehend and understand that new mysterious thing is almost also infinite. So this is why it seems like Bitcoin is connected to so many things, or at least part of that reason is because now we're searching, we're looking at the religious domain, we're looking at the economic domain, we're looking at the philosophical, we're looking at the physical, we're looking at the natural, we're looking at the cosmic to try to derive insight to understand this thing that's incredibly, for lack of a better term, mysterious, right? And so it's that desire to understand this one thing that reanimates, reinvigorates, revivifies inquiry into everything else. And one of the things that I you know, think is super interesting that we've jammed about a lot is like, there's, there's such a hunger and such a renewed appreciation for the religious enterprise to encompass, you know, the whole thing. And I'm amazed that this is happening so quickly and so consistently. Like it forms the basis of most of my conversations these days is like, because, and so the question is, is like, why does an inquiry of this thing, new money, Bitcoin, lead to a revivification, a reinterest in what was for many people dismissed as, as a juvenile vestige of our, of our distant past, right? For a lot of people, they thought we, we ascended past that in our, in our uh, sophistication, in our modern sophistication, we've done away with the silly notion of, of stories that helped us explain away the natural world or superstitions that we thought influenced our lives in the natural world in some way. We're coming back to that and being like, whoa, hold on now. Maybe that was a bit hasty. 
Maybe we threw the baby out with the bathwater there. Maybe the institutions that, that, um, that handled or that, that fostered or that in some way preserved these, you know, religion umbrella term, they are certainly corruptible and have been corrupted in many ways in the past, but that doesn't mean the knowledge and the wisdom and the insight that they were attempting to be stewards of as imperfect beings contains or retains no wisdom. It's seeming like far to the contrary, right? And so as we try to explore this new emergent, deeply meaningful phenomenon, we're reassessing the previous emergent, deeply meaningful phenomenons to try to understand both more clearly and see what the relationship between the two are, right? And so I'm hoping throughout the course of this series, we're really going to dig into some of the finer points and all that. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, man. <laughs> it's like we're realizing that we were sold rash, pure rationalism as an ascension of being, and we're waking up to the fact that we're larger than purely rational. It's like I saw Crypto Traveler talking about it on Twitter yesterday or today yeah. about how being grounded on an existence larger, larger than just rationality makes you more trustworthy in his opinion because it's you have something beyond purely the evidence in front of you to keep your belief sets built upon so that you're not as susceptible to propaganda and lies because you're not just basing it on data gathering where you're trying to outpace it intellectually and the machine trying to consume us, right? It, it, it so quickly goes to this just giant clash of all these different worlds we know, right? Like I can think about quantum physics, like is it matter or is it energy? Is it waves? Is it actual like something solid? Like, well, it, it's both. Like, <laughs> And the harder you try to wrap your head around that, the more just mysterious and beautiful and wonderful it becomes right or you spin that over religion like in the beginning god spoke all of creation flowed from the spoken word okay now bitcoin like money is language like there's all these little synchronicities starting to collide where it comes together for me in this place that's so beautiful of the fact is just kind of unveiling itself is this is not a war like a flesh and blood that we're currently in. So I was speaking at Mark Moss's conference in Miami a couple weeks ago, and where I opened it was like, this is a war between the centralized state system trying to push communism and say that they get the right to choose from the top, right? That the government is God versus us. We're the decentralized revolution who says that the will and capacity for choice should be invested in the family and the sovereign individual. And it's a war over the heart of humanity, of who gets to choose. Where is that divine slice of freedom of will vested? And it just flows back instantly to this question of who are we as people and how do we in the spiritual war defend our capacity for initiative and choice? How do we have a mimetic center that's larger than this accidentally copying all this propaganda that's around us right because we're inherently mimetic creatures what we worship we become like and if we worship rationality we become small little robots who are trying to control the world with this Keynesian mindset right and we know that's wrong so so what's right 
how do we live in a way where we're mimicking something larger than ourselves that's worthy of us aspiring to versus passively receiving inputs and being led like sheep around by our nodes, right? And I think, I think part, if not, and again, throughout the course of this conversation, I know we have a different engagement with faith. So take it all as speculation. I know we're, you know, I know I don't have to say that to you, but for anyone listening. Um, but, but <laughs> That's part I, of why I'm, why I'm looking forward to this conversation so much. There'll be a healthy, like back and I, forth about it. Absolutely. But I think part of that, because I, I agree, right? And so part, if not the fundamental aspect, potentially the fundamental aspect of the religious enterprise is saying which ethic is most worth mimicking, right? If, in, in that, so it's almost like saying we, assume, we, we pass around this notion that value is subjective. And of course it is, right? Because it's determined by the individual. But the religious enterprise seems to say, well, almost all value is subjective, but there are one or maybe a couple values that are absolute. And the religious enterprise has been about observing human interaction with each other and with the natural world in which they emerged or which they, they contend with to try to say, is there something we can infer about the nature of reality and the nature of consciousness that might, that, that dictates the success, and that's a difficult thing to describe, but success of the individual and the collective, and should we call that an absolute value to animate and to, to guide behavior and culture? And I think that, I, I think at least part of the reason why religions have, every great civilization, every civilization, every tribe, every everything has had some relation to that, it's, it's not sufficient to just say the unknown, to the desire or the, the innate, even subconscious knowledge that there is an absolute structure to reality and trying to discern, communicate, narrativize, mythologize what that ethic or value or principles is or are such that you can become more congruent with that reality and therefore pass through it more successfully with less friction, you know, more efficiently, let's say. And, you know, that's, that's really interesting to, to think, in, and you might call this God, right? The, the absolute non-subjective principle. And then you interpret well, that's, that. If you look at the Old Testament of scripture, where, say, I think it's Deuteronomy or Exodus, where God introduces himself to the nation of Israel after they leave Egypt as slaves and become free people. And they're trying to leave behind this paradigm of being a slave mindset and ascend into being free individuals right the way he introduces himself to the nations he says the lord your god is one that word one there is integer integral integrated what he meant is that he's an integrated being slaves aren't you just are split into this fracture of whatever gets implanted into you and you get led around by it right like what is true religion well True religion is the one that works. True religion is the one that integrates you. True religion is the one you can shake and shake and shake and shake, and it's real, and it leads you to that place where you're becoming like that integration. If you look at it far enough, I believe it's also convergent. Like, like um, so I was talking earlier on Twitter about how we as Bitcoiners are all dreaming about ascending the scale as a Kardashev-type civilization, right? 
And where did science stop working? I mean, if you step, if you look now, it's like things have stagnated in a lot of ways. There is enough of a, this big boom of technology that we don't really realize it yet. But I mean, there's so many fields where we've just not had any breakthroughs and they're rate limiting fields. Like for example, cooling. Like cooling is not advanced technology in decades by and large. We use the same radial fans that have all the same problems. It's just all these little things there that if you had better cooling capabilities, your energy production, your chips, your computers and like computation, lasers, like all these things would advance much more quickly because it's an energy density problem, right? But science itself has become politicized where it's more about this false religion of bureaucrats of enforcing their will, right? Than an actual pursuit of objective truth. So like we tend to think about, like you said, there's a few truths that in religion have been seen as uh, objective and external and grounded and solid, right? Versus other things in the subjective theory of value or like you get to choose, right? But when we came to believe that at scale with science, that's when science stopped. Because in order for science to be effective, there has to be an underlying comprehension that I'm seeking a cohesive theory of reality of a larger truth that's actually objective and works. Okay, so when you let that go, you lose your ability to have advancements. You lose your ability for technology to move because all it becomes is politics of you like, lose the I'm just going to control. Yeah. Hmm? I was just gonna say, you certainly lose the compass, you know, to, to apply that method too. Yeah, exactly. So now it just becomes, what do the people in charge want me to say so they can extract the most value from humanity, right? To craft humanity in their image. And now you have a mimetic impulse of these lizards at the top <laughs> versus free sons and daughters trying to make the world more beautiful because they're pursuing a truth larger than themselves, right? Like if you step back and look at some of the biggest advancements in science, like you think about Einstein, he was prone to saying, like, people would ask him, like, why do you believe this theory? Nobody around you believes this theory. You're the only freaking one that believes this. You're an idiot. And he'd look at him and he goes, like, he's like, they would tell him, like, look, you can't even defend this theory yet. Like, why do you believe in this? You're like so vehement that this is the right way. And he would look at him and say, because it's beautiful. There's this integration of being where, as a scientist, when you're grounded in understanding that there's objective truth larger than you, and when you integrate that with an understanding of beauty and goodness that's larger than you, it unlocks an ability to move into that world in an exploratory manner and manifest it into the current realm of time and space. Because you're, you're using your spirit to reach beyond our realm and draw it into our current state of being. When we lost that external truth of something larger than us, when we lost our connection, like Jordan Peterson kind of started exploring this as one of the first movers of bringing this back, the whole idea of maps of meaning, right? When we lost that, we lost our ability to ascend. We started descending and thought we were going up. We just didn't even realize it until <laughs> really coronavirus and all the bullshit started enslaving humanity and realized just how fucked everything is of the direction that we started heading. Yeah, there's a lot there, but you know, one of the things I, I agree and that I think is interesting is like the scientific method. And, and first of all, I'd like to say that it seems to me, you know, like I was, when I was like 20 years old, I read all the Dawkins, Harris, all that, all those books. And I felt all high and mighty that 
I had determined how foolish, you know, religion was and how could, how could, you know, 5,000 years of, of human beings been so hoodwinked by such a, a juvenile enterprise. And um, the, you know, the arrogance and hubris that I felt then is what I think permeates a lot of culture today. It's a very, it's just an extremely arrogant position to hold. But I, I've come to thinking that, because sometimes we might describe and say, okay, well, religion is not necessarily rational or scientific, but there's another value there that we should explore. But I've come around to thinking it's extremely rational and it's also pretty much scientific. Like, what did I say before? It's like human beings become self-aware or we have a type of consciousness that at least seems self-aware. We act, we observe our action and we, we see the results in interaction with each other and in interaction with the natural world. Now, if you have a, a belief that all uh, of this higher wisdom contained in the religious sphere came down as a revelation, well then let's just shelve that notion for the moment. And let's say that at least part of the religious enterprise was wisdom discovered by the collective of human beings transcoded into myth, narrative and story in order to propagate the wisdom that was discovered. But the very process of doing that was acting, observing action, uh, and then trying to articulate what was observed and what insights can be pulled out of what was observed. That's science to me. You know, like you, 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 mm -hmm. you make an experiment, you make an observation, you maybe you have a, a hypothesis, you observe the behavior, you observe the outcome, you infer the relationship between the action and the reaction. And, there, and, and through that emerges scientific knowledge and complicated complexification of knowledge and I see a very similar process having played out it's just that in the current materialist scientific domain we're operating in the realm of material versus material effectively and also we're operating in the realm of the instruments that we have to measure things we can't really do science outside of that domain whereas in the religious realm we're operating with one half let's say material i.e human action but the other part is immaterial and so fundamental that you don't like, surely there's no instrument to measure it, but also it's, it's almost, it's somewhat ethereal. It's somewhat elusive. And that makes it seem like only one half of that equation is being dealt with, but there is another half. It's just so difficult to discern. And what do you know that because it's so difficult and because of how important it is, it becomes central to every civilization that's ever emerged on earth, right? That concern of how do we address reality? How is a, a reality addressing us? How then should we address each other? That's basically the, the fundamental question around religion. And it's so important and, and it so dictates the success or failure of a individual, a family, a community, a tribe, a culture, a civilization, that it becomes the central focus. And as you were just saying, for some reason, we've lost that now. Or not, let's not say lost it. For some reason, the importance of that enterprise is being dismissed and is being um, deprecated in some way. And the big question is, well, and so one of the outcomes is that everything becomes relative. As we say, if there's no absolute value orienting things, if, if there's not even the striving to discover that absolute value, then everything becomes relative. And then all value gets 
almost eradicated. You know, this is a really interesting relation to something Correct. like Bitcoin and economics. It's like, and, and also the function of money, right? Like if, if, and how it influences your value hierarchies is if the whole reason why it's beneficial is because it, it allows you to comparative, to, to carry out comparative valuation. And then some sort of a priori value structure allows you to make the comparisons based on the in inputs and the information that that price signal, let's say, is giving you, right? So that pristine signal is a means to an end. And the end yep. is determining how things land within your internal value hierarchy and your system of valuation. But, and again, so the religious enterprises is like saying, that's going to happen anyways. That's how consciousness works. That's how we move through reality. We make these comparative valuation and judgments, and then we act in accord with them. What is the thing that's most orienting the top of your value structure such that it can uh, most effectively and efficiently and successfully order everything subordinate to it, all the action that, that, that is beneath it, let's say. And if you don't have that, well, let's say the, the, the character or the qualities of that ultimate value have a massive influence on your life and your action and the culture you feed into. And absent, and I'm, this is a too simplistic um, case to be made for a quote unquote God or, the, uh, or an absolute value, because I don't think it's a matter of doing it pragmatically. Because what I'm about to say is like, absent a something larger than yourself to humble you, then your ego becomes overexpressed and amplified within a relative a, a, a framework of exclusively relative value. And that is just a recipe for chaos, basically. Um, yeah, exactly. But the reason why I make that caveat is because I don't think that the strongest case to be made for either its discovery or its pre-existence is a pragmatic one. I just think as as part of the analysis, you could say there's a pre like it is very it works out well, let's say, to have an absolute principle at the top of things. But if you only instantiate it as a pragmatic means, I don't think it has the proper gravity to actually influence things um, to the full extent or to, to the extent that it can. So that's that. Right? So the way I would define worship is it's a reaching above yourself in a belief that you know where life can be found above you in order to incarnate it into being into your realm of existence. Okay. So when you don't have that, when you don't have that as your mimetic center for you to be imitating and becoming and incarnating. And when you live in this relativistic world that you're describing, it becomes a competition of ego with friction that has no value gain, right? Because friction is supposed to be creative destruction. Worship is the center grounding point of this is the purpose of the friction because this is what we're ascending towards. When we have a mob, then that competition is pure entropy. It's just pure loss because you're trying to go there. They're trying to go there. They're trying to go there. They're trying to go there. Where? There's no quest of integration, right? The Lord your God is one. 
to a larger state of being to where we are becoming more whole beings, spirit, soul, mind, heart, body, energy, <laughs> money, language, in order to ascend as a civilization into being capable of more. Without worship, we will always diminish rather than increase. So just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean it doesn't have sense. That's the whole point, is if we restrict ourselves to only believing things that make sense to us, then we can only expand as far as what we understand. And in a world of relativistic entropy, our understanding is always shrinking. So our world is always getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Worship is saying, and I think, and I think religion makes this mistake too, right? Because in order to have an ascension of being, an ascension of a civilization, you need scientists believing that there's objective truth and pursuing it intellectually. And you need the, what should we call them, like the monks, <laughs> saying that there's objective truth and pursuing it in the spiritual realm, right? And so you need them talking to each other and integrating what they're discovering, right? And so religion makes the same mistake science did with rationalism. Religion divorced itself saying, okay, well, this doesn't have to make sense. It's religion. This is different. Like, no, fuck no. Like, that's when religion started being useless. Because if religion isn't true enough to integrate it, then it's not true religion. And it's not even religion at all, because the whole point of religion is ascension into oneness. So, like, we all have to have the humility to sit back and do the work. Whether you're talking the religious work, the spiritual dynamic, the science work, the technology dynamic, like, it's it all flows to the same place. It's just, um, they're different landscapes we have to fight the battles in to advance the one that's most left behind. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. And I, I'd never really thought about it in those terms before. You know, when we try to think about why is religion being left behind? Why is it being degraded in the, the minds of, of modern culture, let's say? And, I, and, you know, it could very well be that case that both sides have kind of dug in their heels thinking that their perspective worldview approach is the ultimate when the answer is actually both taken together and integrated, as you've been saying, you know, is the ultimate. Or is the best, best way of discovering and integrating truth, which presumably is the same, is the enterprise both are pursuing just with different materials, with different substrate, basically. Yeah. So uh, the way I would define in like another biblical story, like the Tower of Babel, is they were trying to ascend to heaven to where they could have all their needs met and have the world they wanted but without having to do the work. They were trying to steal it, right? They were trying to build a tower and become God. I mean, that was the in scripture also the original sin of Satan. He was an angel who wanted to replace God and take God's place because he thought he could do God better than God could. So that's the same thing as kinesiism, right? It's like we want to have consumerism and production without having to do the work. We want to produce money with a zero marginal cost, right? That mentality is pervasive in humanity, and it always is the thing that cripples us. We want to have things without doing the work. I mean, because I believe in the story of the Garden of Eden, God's created man, and then he told them, be fruitful and multiply, go and take dominion. God's original intention, like let us make man in our image, was to 
take these created beings that he vested this ability to choose in, this part of the divine where they had will, and raise them as sons and daughters to ascend into being gods like him, being kings and queens who can rule and steward over the world he created. And I think eventually even become creators in full rights themselves. But there's a path that must be followed and submitted to. And that path requires doing the work, doing the work of seeking these truths and finding that beauty and submitting to it and worshiping it and knowing it and becoming it and integrating to it so that we can become like it is and ascend into that place. Because relativism of trying to do that on our own without worship just leads to entropy. We have to have that mix of humility of recognizing there's a world bigger than us, that we're made from more than what we currently can just possess in our own power of mind or whatever. Kind of like a son being raised by a father, right? It's like he trusts his dad to teach him. And have the stubbornness to stick at the training. Because it's a discipline. It's work. It's not easy. It's your training through pain of just working at it, making mistakes. And even the training itself has exposure because even just the vulnerability of asking the next question. I mean, that's like Bitcoin, you know, it, there's an innate courage that's required to wade into the unknown deep enough to look at how fucked everything is and seeing the truth. Yeah. One of the so the, are you familiar with Eric Neumann, The Origins and History of Consciousness? So he, it, it's somewhat similar to Maps of Meaning, but he interprets the religious um, enterprise and the religious stories as a corollary to the evolution of consciousness. And just to basically summarize the argument is at first when humans evolved on earth, there was like a a participation mystique you were very much so a part of the group right the the tribe of apes or whatever and then and as human consciousness developed it individuated more and more and more and more where individuals became more different and more yeah more unique from one another and the the interplay i guess going on there is not just the individual with the group but as we were saying before the individual with the chaotic potential of the structure of reality and the natural world and the unseen world and everything that could be, right? Seen and unseen potential. And as you were just saying, part of the articulation of the hero's journey of which the regenerative hero in myth and story that's been recapitulated many, many times is that one who has the courage to, who's, who's integrated enough to not be consumed as they delve into the chaos of potential to try to bring back something of value, reintegrate it into themselves and share it with the, the community or the society or whatever. And so that, that's why, well, that tells two things. One, how much courage is required because the unknown is always terrifying, right? And the more terrifying it is, typically the more value it contains. And so the hero is the one who's integrated and courageous enough to be able to dip into it but not be consumed by it and dip and, and come back out of it and bring something of value from it and reintegrate that. And that becomes the order of the culture of the community of the tribe, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that this is the, and as that's taking place, right, it's not just a courageous thing, but as time goes on, as culture complexifies, the individual, it's almost like a, a scaffold. Well, it's, 
culture becomes a, a method for the further individuation and, and integration, self-integration of the individual, right? As it complexifies and as it acts as more of a mirror to discover different aspects of yourself, because culture is like the collective turning our consciousness inside out, right? Why do we have movies and strip clubs and, you know, posters and all this kind of stuff? It's all speaking to things that are introjected into our psyche, right? And we're, we're ex expressing them and experiencing them externally as well as internally. There's a, there's a relationship there. And basically culture, and th this is why it's so important. This is why I'm like, I'm so fascinated with the culture that's emerging around Bitcoin, why we have these conversations. Because, you know, I used to think kind of like Terrence McKenna, who's a, a psychedelic guy and there's tens of thousands of hours of him on YouTube and he's an amazing orator and, and speaker. But he would always say, culture is not your friend. And I understood what he meant back in the day because, you know, our culture is so toxic today. There's, you know, there's war, there's violence, there's famine, there's poverty, there's dishonesty, there's all that, there's corruption, all this stuff. But it's not necessarily true. It's just that cult, it, and this again is part of the, the importance of the religious enterprise. It recognizes that culture, getting culture right is really, really important because those are the signals that the individual is going to get for their own refinement and evolution. And it's also the thing that the individual is gonna send their own signals, their own wisdom, their own insights to, right? And so it's this feedback, this highly important feedback loop that elevates it, that um, constructed properly, elevates the individual, elevates the culture and expands the surface area for elevation of more people to higher you know, states of consciousness, let's say, or more evolved states of consciousness. That's kind of Neumann's theory. So I wouldn't say culture is not your friend. I would say, make sure you get culture right. And part of the religious enterprise and integration into culture, not that it was a choice, right? Because it was inevitable integration, but the reason why it was so, part of the reason, in my opinion, why it was so important is the recognition of that relationship and how it fostered people within the culture. And so it was kind of a question like, well, what's the best thing to sit at the foundation of of the, the machine that's going to signal everything to everyone in the culture and going to serve as their, the information by which they construct their identity and their cells, what's, that, what's the primary animating energy, let's say, belief, principle, value, what, what, however you want to characterize it, that's part of the religious enterprise, right? It's saying we hold this thing to be most sacred because we believe these principles most contribute to the successful and efficient generation of culture that leads to the most successful, efficient living of lives and evolution of consciousness. And, and you could say that the more you get that right, the more that those principles and values are congruent or aligned with broader, let's say, eternal, like structure of reality, godlike principles and values, then the more that culture and those individuals actually extract, you know, the, the ultimate supreme values from reality and make them real, just like we make the contents of our consciousness real, why we build chairs to sit on and entertainment and all that kind of stuff, like I mentioned before, that very same process. I mean, we, we, we're going to turn ourselves inside out either way. So it's almost like, What's the, the most important thing to turn inside out? And this, in my opinion, is the notion of 
building the kingdom of God on earth, extracting out the most important principles and values and manifesting them in the world through behavior and through our building and through our work. And what could be a more important enterprise than that? And so determining what values and principles are going to animate the culture and the people and what gets built is of the ultimate significance. There's nothing more significant than that. Hence the focus on it. Yeah, my, my sage has this thing he always says, which is how do you know you're living inside your real gifts? Well, it's, it's when you're doing really huge things with very little effort. If we flip this conversation, what we're saying here is that a culture that's integrated to true religion is a culture that enables its people to do very huge things with very little effort because it pulls the best out of each person at the micro level, right? I mean, this, this tool is what is being used against us by the state authorities right now. They're taking this cultural feedback mechanism and using it to manufacture consent at scale for this mass psychosis that's going on to the destruction of human will and choice so that they can have choice only at the top, right? right? They're literally destroying humanity, the heart of humanity, the divine in humanity. That's, that's egregious. I don't like it. I can barely fathom what that even means. But this is why communist systems or totalitarian dictators always go after killing religions. This is why there is persecution of the Christians, whether in China or, or Rome or wherever, because, or like even Babylon, like back in the book of Daniel, where he got thrown in the furnace because he wouldn't worship the golden idol that the king set up, right? It's like, when you have a grounding to something external to you that you believe is your source of life, you're not going to worship the state as the state tries to convince you that they're your source of life. So they can't break you. You're unbreakable. That is terrifying to them. And that's one of the real reasons why religion matters so much right now, because we need to be unbreakable and have that as a grassroots emergence that overwhelms this tyranny so that humanity doesn't die. I don't know if there's ever been a point globally where there's been such a cohesive push to destroy the hearts and choice of humanity at the basic foundational level. Yeah, it reminds me of two things. One, the quote by Jacinda Ardern, who's saying like, we are the single source of truth, you know, don't go anywhere else, you know, for truth. And I'm just, you know, just how absurd that notion is. But also, you know, it, one of the things that's so amazing about the, uh, the stories in, in various religions is just how beautifully they and, and skillfully transmit wisdom. You know, like even if, even if there's aspects of all this stuff that don't currently jive with you, there's so much good eternal wisdom in these stories. And of course, they're, that's their purpose, right? It's like, okay, well, we can't just say, this is a supreme principle, go live it out. You have to kind of show what living it out looks like. You have to, you have to, narrativize this so people can see the wisdom in it and not that this yeah, is a in, story. in scripture the way that's actually called is it says work out your salvation through fear and trembling it's like the process of integrating seek it have the humility to kind of know where the boundaries are and when you slip it up and let the friction shape you and mold you into the integrated process yeah and one of the, one of the quotes that uh i don't know where it, it comes from i'm yeah, I don't know where it comes from, but I, I heard it recently. 
but it's, it might have even been attributed to Jesus, but you, you probably know, but it said, put truth and regard for the divine and humanity above all else and everything you need will follow. And it's like right there, you have the two fundamental things, truth and individual divinity and sovereignty. Don't violate like those two things. And most things will probably be manageable or work out. And as you say, the state today is trying to violate both. They're trying to, to take a monopoly on truth and they're trying to collectivize everything to say that, no, you're not, you as an individual is not the most important thing. Us as an institution and us as a collective that we just happen to exert control over is what's most important, which is, as you say, I mean, not, I mean, it seems like there's a, there's a battle for the, the soul of humanity going on. I know a lot of people are feeling that way. Yeah, the scripture that that is probably a paraphrase of is where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Yeah, maybe. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says something along the lines. He calls it the dialectic of desire, I think is what it's called. Um, where when you're on the journey of truly pursuing, understanding something, then the journey itself is corrective of all the false measures because you realize it doesn't satisfy the desire. So it's like the desire itself is the grounding to something larger, even if you don't even really know what it is you desire yet. Because as long as you're faithful to it, it offers a counterbalance because you know when it, whether it's a false satisfaction or not, right? I, I should look up that quote. I'll look it up next time you're going on a little monologue and see if I can find it. <laughs> All right, well, but it's, think, go ahead. Go ahead. Ball's you go. in your court. Go for it. <laughs> All right, well, I, I wanted to circle back to, because I, I think we should spend some time. And as we, have, as we talk, man, I'm like, oh, we're going to have to dig into this, 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 and this. We, we got a lot oh, of there's stuff so to, much. to get into the finer points here. So keep, keep a mental note or a physical note. But I think the, the reason why religion is being dismissed by modern culture. I think that's something worth investigating a little bit. Um, and I, so I think one, one aspect of it, and this is kind of the, the more benign aspect than the state has assumed more relevance in people's lives and as a result has diminished the, the role of, of the family and the principles and institutions that have fostered strong families and individuals. I think that's a part of it. And, and hopefully we can touch on it. But I think also like the salience of religious narrative and myth and story and symbolism. And I don't use those words as like a throwaway. Like we interpret the world through symbolism and narrative. We don't interpret story. the world. Yeah, we, like we don't interpret the world story. through material and, and, and physical matter, right? And, and it, it's interesting to think of how symbols help us channel the energy of our unconscious, right? So we know, like we were talking about before, that the, the chaos of potential, the unknown in our minds and in relation to the world, symbols allow us to contextualize that enough, open up a dialectic to not have that energy consume us with anxiety, fear, whatever, nor have it like, nor have us like burn it out in, in a certain way. It kind of contains it. And then we use the relative salience and the relative meaning of these symbols to construct narratives. 
And then we also use those narratives and symbols to determine hierarchies of, of value and meaning, right? Like when, once we interject all of these symbols that speak to the deepest meanings inside our minds, then our minds naturally, but you know, so consciously and, and subconsciously determine which ones are elevated over the others, right? And so certain symbols almost unavoidably rise to the top and we may not know why. And that's why we, we, we more analyze behavior than determine behavior, right? Like a lot of our behavior yep. is subconscious. And so we can look and say, why are the symbols that animate the culture or animate our consciousness or that we respond to most, uh, most strongly? Why are they those symbols? What do those symbols represent? Not in, as in like a nice academic pursuit of investigating symbols. No, why is the, the meaning and the salience and the energy charge behind those symbols elevated to the top of, of the, the symbolic hierarchy? And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting rabbit hole in itself, but I bring it up just to say that <laughs> we, we construct these narratives, we, we can only construct these symbols based on our environment, right? So an example that Peterson has used before, it's like when you try to make a symbol for the, mo the, the absolute most fearful and devouring aspect of potential, right? So let's say the quote unquote negative aspect of potential. What form does it take? Well, as human beings, we look at an environment to things that we are already fearful of and we say, okay, snakes, they kill me. Water, I drown in it, it kills me. Fire, it burns my village, it kills me. All right, so the thing that I'm gonna use as a symbol, and again, this is not always conscious, is gonna be a fire-breathing snake that can fly and kill me from above, whose tears flood the world and we all die. That becomes the symbol of the chaos of potential, the destructive element of potential. Right, and that's not trivial. Like that's a real relationship with our subconscious that we actually use in order to engage the world. And so I think part of what's happening now is that all of our religious story and, and narrative and myth was constituted in a, a natural world that remained more or less the same for a very long time. But with the advent of let's say 20th century technology, our experience of the world the landscape of the world is vastly different right like especially with the the rise of of digital worlds our quote-unquote environment that we derive signal from imbue with meaning derive meaning from is rapidly separating from the natural world and i wonder how much the salience of symbol and narrative and myth derive from the world that we experienced for 5,000 or 10,000 plus years of our history is losing salience because now we're interacting with a, a world that is departing from that. And so as a result, the stories founded on that previous experience of the world may be losing salience and power as well because those symbols are no longer, let's say purpose fit or purpose built for the new emerging environment. And so we're going to need, and I would, I would posit, inevitably discover symbols that actually help us relate to 
the dramatically changing emerging environment that our consciousness now interacts with and it will reestablish those relationships that allow for salient communication to take place but we're in this weird in-between period perhaps where uh, because of that schism the salience is lost and we're in a bit of a no man's land and there's a really interesting little for bitcoin to slide into this uh, this discussion but i don't want to i don't want to go there prematurely. So I'll, I'll pass it back over to you. Yeah, I think there's a reason for a lot of that loss. And I think it's deeper than most people realize. So like we've already talked about how when you live in a world that's purely rational, you're restricted to entropy because you're just competing against each other versus ascending. But I think there's more to it, right? With the long game of trying to take control of humanity with the Marxist type ideology, one of the first things that happen is a destruction of the warrior class and the priest class of the archetypes of people in society. We elevated like the teacher and administrative class and then the worker class above the priest and warrior class. Okay, so that's inverted. The priest and the warrior class are those who could go into the chaos to bring back the truth and goodness to incarnate it into reality. And then it's supposed to be the worker and the teacher and administrative class to work out how to execute that into reality, right? And propagate it, right? We are looking to the teacher, worker, administration class of the type of people to be the ones who lead and set the direction. They don't know the direction. That's not their archetype. They don't know where to be leading people. They're just leading us in circles and spiraling down to hell in the midst of it, right? Like there, um, there used to be ways of being in society that it had a memory of what was important that's been lost. Like the world I know best would be like the Native American world of tribal people and medicine people. They had this belief that medicine people born into the tribes had this inherent thing about them was diff that was different when they were born. And I won't, I won't get into details too much, but what they believed was different is that they had in their incarnation of being had a deeper experience of integrated oneness flowing from the creator himself and that they carried a deeper memory of what the integrated place felt like. Okay. And so for them, the boundary between spirit and soul with the realm beyond us in the physical world for them was thinner. Okay. So they knew that for people like that, that life hurts. Medicine people have this pain they carry where they have the sensation of what things are supposed to be like because they have this memory of it. But there's this feeling of loss that's attached. And it's hard to even for those people often to even exist because existing is like remembering how far you are from what you tasted in your creation story because they had that spirit that reached farther, right? And so tribal groups had this, this whole system, especially in the Native American world, which is what I know best, of recognizing who those people were and protecting them 
and bringing them into a community that understood them and training them so that they could be the forerunners who went into the chaos to bring the stories back. And they had these other things too that were interesting where there's a saying by them called falling into the sky, where there are those people that had that thinner level of existence that if you didn't care for their hearts and kind of respect and honor them and help take care of some of their base humanity needs to let them focus on doing the job they were created for of incarnating, incarnating that journey of stories into reality for the tribe, they would lose heart. They would just crumple and give up and they'd go lay in the field somewhere until they just passed away and ascended back into the sky where they'd rather be. It was like the love of the community of knowing that they were being served by the medicine people is part of what kept them grounded of knowing it was worth the pain. And you look at our society today, I mean, the warrior and the priest class have just been destroyed. I mean, not only do they not exist in the hierarchy of society, by and large, the people who are the ones who touch those realms deepest are mocked. I mean, masculinity of aggression has been mocked. It's been treated as if it's evil, as if there's no place for it, and that you're like a terror and bad and evil and wrong if you have it. And then, I mean, the priest class, I don't even want to get into how bad that's been destroyed. And so we have these people who are meant to be supported by society so that they could protect lead and do the work for society that society needs to ascend and instead they got attacked by society so they don't get to fill their role of serving and in that place now society got lost it doesn't know where it's going and that's fed into the capacity for marxism to take over at scale so this whole question of how do we fix this feedback loop of culture to facilitate people becoming their best is so much bigger than I think anybody realizes. It's, it's the core of unlocking, because yes, there's power and choices vested in the individual when we can fight to become what we're made to be, but we're also made for relationship. We're made to exist within community and family. You can't truly become all you are without having those around you that are meant to integrate with you where you can serve them with your gifts. We're meant to share and take care of one another and do both without sacrificing free will. It should all be consensual. It should all be done by choice. The will of the individual is incredibly important. I mean, I would argue this is one of the main theses of Christianity, is that will and choice is so important that when humanity got enslaved due to sin, and so like I would define sin like kind of like Paul in the New Testament, he says, I'm doing that which I don't want to do. And I'm not doing that, which I do want to do. Who will rescue me from this crisis that I'm in? I believe the whole purpose of Christianity and Christ and the story of the cross and the new covenant. And like, man, we can get into so many details there. And I believe the whole point of that was to reinstitute the ability of the individual to choose because their heart had gotten crumpled to where they were being overwhelmed in the spiritual world, spiritual war from the outside to where they couldn't, even if they wanted to, ground themselves on the journey the mimetic impulses of worshiping truth bigger than them. We have opened so many rabbit holes in this conversation. Oh, it's like we're dancing through just touching <laughs> a million things. We'll, I guess we'll, this is why we wanted to do it as a super series. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll circle back uh, and there'll be overlap inevitably, but yeah, just keep it keep it up because we're we're, uh, we're getting I'm, I'm enjoying this let's put it that way but one of the things that i wanted to 
touch on there is like what you just described as that that person in the community like that has historically been the role of the shaman is pretty much as far back as you go like the shaman is the one who is almost like chosen or sacrificed as like or identified as the one most capable of going into the chaos of of pure potential and unknown surviving and bringing something like basically the shaman is is the archetypal hero especially in primitive early civilization and primitive societies like they're the one that sets the value tone for for the organization and, and of course in modern or for the for the community in modern society we've again marginalized even that role and just say oh yeah they're supposed to know when it's going to rain or where the where the animals are going to be found and all that kind of stuff but their role was was far more important than that right and then that that in in certain societies that role morphed and changed and the wisdom that was brought back was codified and built upon and we get these extremely rich systems of like you know again maybe a loaded word for some but religion that that communicate this stuff and you know one of the things i wanted to also go back to is when you say like if we're talking about why did religion why why is religion being diminished and so it seems like part of the reason is well maybe we should dig into the means of of how this happened but the state has ascended so much in and has retained and obtained so much power that the relative power influence importance of both the individual and the family unit has been diminished in relative and probably absolute terms. And what you were saying, one of the things that you were saying is like, well, how do we re- like retain and continue to instantiate these most important principles and values such that they are not lost, such that things devolve into a relativistic, purely entropic chaos, right? And part of that is ritual. Ritual was always the thing that when we identified like foundational values, parameters, principles of a culture, say, okay, that needs to be ritualized because we will fuck it up. The, the chaos of life, the, the forgetfulness and amnesia of history, by whatever means, we'll lose that insight. So let's, let's sacralize it in a way that at least diminishes the likelihood of that happening. Okay, ritual. And we ritualize the things that are the most important, whether it's like a coming of age thing, whether it's an appreciation for the highest principles in our society. You know, there's many different ways that this has been capitulated. And I think you could also say, if you want to, if you want to determine what is, you know, the highest power or what is most valued in a society, look to their ritual. And what are the most ritualized things in today's modern world? They all have to do with the state. The new president is in. Oh, my God. Like, it's a gigantic affair with, you know, military, you know, fighter jets overhead, all this kind of stuff. Like, and what does that say? It says that that institution and what it represents has somehow ascended the value and power hierarchy. And then you can have the conversation, like, is that good or is that bad? And I think we would both agree that, that is bad. That's misplacing the power and the value in the society. And it's having a lot of deleterious effects. But you mentioned like 
Marxism and why these people emerge, it's like, I, I, I have to remind myself that, you know, those people that uh, bring that type of value system to society, or at least attempt to, they are just, they're no different than anybody else, right? They're not, there's no such thing as Marxism in effect, right? These are people being possessed by a certain set of principles and values and thinking that they are the best ones to instantiate. Now, maybe they're being led astray by their own subconscious desire for power. And that's what's animating their behavior more than uh, more than more noble truths or principles as we've been discussing. And so the question is, and this is why, you know, people get derided when they say, well, this is actually a spiritual battle that's taking place. It's like, well, almost everything is a spiritual battle. Everything, it's, it's like all persecutions are religious because what re one of the fundamental functions of religion is determining your a priori value system and as a result, your worldview. And so yep. if I persecute you because you have a different worldview, you think things should be differently, you want to act differently than I want you to act, then what we're saying is we have different worldviews and religion is the thing that mediates those. So all persecution is ultimately religious. But it, 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 I'm wondering, love to get your take on this, like, why is it that, why is it that those two approaches to life are now in battle? Like, is it even, is it even a, a higher level than just saying the state? You know, like, it, what, why is what animates Marxism? We can, we can accept the fact that, like, as the state siphons off wealth through the money printer, they end up uh, subsuming the role, many of the roles that the family typically played. And as a result, the ritual and the strength and the institutions of family that were previously so important and also spoke to an understanding of the divinity of the individual and the, the importance of the family unit, they've been relatively diminished by this, um, by this uh, taking of responsibility away from the family and to the state, like that's certainly a, a part of it. But why do you think this, this animus that is more oriented towards power and entropy versus truth and order is emerging? I love it. So <laughs> there is no state, right? Like really, like I use this descriptively, not proscriptively. Like the state right. is purely just us choosing to do this to ourselves and to each other. Um, I love the example you used about ritual, right? Like what is the thing that is most ritualized and celebrated? Rather than us celebrating the ascension of a boy becoming a man, having done the work, you know, and the individual and the way he's grown and now he's joining society and going to have a positive impact of helping make our tribe and community a better place. We celebrate pomp and circumstance of this bureaucrat that's going to put his will over top of stall, right? The difference here is that real ritual is supposed to give you a frame for how to do the work. That's what ritual was used to be. Like we had healing ceremonies or medicine ceremonies or like marriage ceremonies or initiation of boyhood into manhood ceremonies. They were all things that you were striving towards of understanding 
this is the context of where I exert my will to do the work. This is what it means to do the work. This is how I know I've finished the work and I can do the next part of the work. We don't like doing the work. That's, that's where the war really is at. It's a war between those who are worshiping something greater than themselves of wanting to incarnate truth and beauty and are willing to do the work and those who want to just steal heaven and sit back and be gods and not have to work. That's why we create the state. And it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, I keep going back to biblical examples because they're what I know best. Like in the book of Samuel, they were begging, give us a king, give us a king so we can fight the nations around us and he'll take care of us. And God warned the people of Israel, like, you don't want a king. Like, he's going to tax you. He's going to enslave your sons and daughters. He's going to take them and put them in his war or in his, um, in his, uh, in his army and ship them off to war and make them go conquer enemies that he gets into fights with. Like, why do you want a king? <laughs> and it, like, it's the same thing as the Tower of Babel. We want to not have to do the work. That's Marxism in its core. That's statism in its core. That's the difference between this decentralized revolution of Bitcoin versus this onslaught of communist tyranny. We treasure goodness and truth, and we want to live in a world where we get to do the work because we want to make the world look like that thing that we see. Them, they think they can have the world they want without having to do the work, and it's a lie. It's really just that simple. And it would seem that that's an inseparable aspect of being a human being like that. And I guess that this is why understanding oneself, that role of individual development is so important because that is where you decide where you're going to fall on how you engage reality. Again, the function of culture and religion is trying to help inform the individual as to how to understand themselves in relation to the world and other people that they share it with such that these decisions can be optimally made. But it would appear that as you say, nothing new under the sun, I mean, that is, that is an eternal struggle, right? The eternal struggle, struggle between, you know, again, for lack of a better term, but like finding that peace within oneself that animates proper engagement with, with the world versus in uh, confronting the chaos and the threat and the other aspects of the world and saying someone else needs to confront that for me in various ways because I'm not capable, I'm not strong enough, I, I don't want to, I don't feel like it should have to be me you know, it is very much wrapped up in this. Well, this is another way you could characterize it. You could say one is self-deception and one is trying to see clearly, right? One is deceiving oneself into thinking that one can be fulfilled. One can have what one wants. One can optimally engage in life and consciousness and existence with this set of behaviors or beliefs versus this set. And that's why I think oftentimes, you know, we... All of these uh, words are, are obviously too narrow to encapsulate what we're trying to discuss, but like, well, in, you and I will often speak about trying to seek the truth. And again, why does that notion reemerge so often in pretty much every system of religious thought that there is? It's because I think part of it is trying to uh, reiterate 
and amplify the notion that self-deception is basically one of the roads to destruction and despair and pain and chaos, whereas a continual attempt to see with clarity and to see the truth and to find it within oneself is the road to re engaging reality on optimal terms. Not necessarily the quote unquote easiest, although there's, you know, I'm starting to appreciate more uh, how work is reinterpreted when it's motivated by different principles and, and different uh, values, let's say, but that's another one maybe we'll have to shelve, but I lost my train of thought there. You go. <laughs> See, I would say this is the original self-deception. And it's the self-deception that all others spring from. So if you go to the Garden of Eden story of them eating the apple, so they were told, like, they were planted in this garden by God. They were given this, all their needs were met. It was beautiful. They got to walk with God in the garden and be his children. And they were given the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, go and take dominion, which is to say, like, take this garden that I gave you an example of, use it as your mimetic center to get to know how I did it, and then go copy it, right? Make the rest, go, go into the unknown to the rest of the wilderness and do it again. And there was this intention, like, let us make man in our image. Like, so the Godhead created humanity and was raising them up to be like them. And learning how to recreate the garden was a part of that training process of raising, the, raising them as children of God, right? Of making them into God's image. And what happened is the serpent came along and told Eve, there's the one rule, like, don't eat of this tree. This tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And what the lie was from the serpent was God's holding out on you take this apple, eat it, and be like God. It doesn't even make any sense when you understand the story. But everything God was up to was making them like God. He was training them to be like God. He was training them to know everything God was up to, to be able to create gardens like God was doing. He made them in his image so they could ascend into that paradigm. She bought the lie believing that she didn't have to worship God and obey him in that process of ascension. She thought she could skip the work. She thought she could just take a shortcut, eat the apple, and get the knowledge without the work and just get to be God. But what it led to, what it led to was destruction. Because now she has this knowledge, but without the character and capacity to do it without having self-destruction take root in her family. That thing right there that unwillingness to stay submitted to the truth and beauty that's larger than us and then pursue it. I mean, because that truth and beauty is infinite. There's no place where the quest to learn that and become more like it stops, where we don't have another place where we can reach farther and incarnate it, right? Like, like we often think of religion as if they're simple people. Evil's simple. Somebody who's a liar is always going to lie. I know exactly what they're going to do. Somebody who's insecure is always going to hide. I know exactly what they're going to do. Somebody's prideful. I know always. I know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to pump their own ego. It's super predictable. I can manipulate those people so easy. A good man, I have no fucking clue what he's going to do. The options are limitless because he's going to try to find the way to maximize value in the way he subjectively determines what's best. That place from that submission to goodness and integrating the goodness 
is the position from which we can do the work to make this world that we desire. That's that split between the two sides of humanity, like the goats and the sheep, the wheat and the tares, whatever analogy you want to use between like good and evil of people that are children of God or zombies or robots or evil, is those who are going to stay submitted to pursuing becoming like that goodness and truth and do the work in those who are trying to possess it without doing the work. Right. Yeah, I think I, this helps me kind of remember the train of thought for the last one, but I guess what I was thinking was like, is that entirely avoidable or is it a necessary part, right? Because if for no other reason, it takes time for wisdom to be integrated, right? And so even if in a, some sort of hypothetical, by the age of 20, 30, 40, 60, whatever, we all had kind of reached the right way to fall on that divide that you just described, that still means there's a big part of life where we haven't sorted that perfectly and the world will manifest with that imperfection. And so well, I guess one of, the, one of the things I was leading towards in the, in the previous rant was we accept that, that people's self-delusion or self-deception or their, or their lack of wisdom is going to manifest in how they act in the world and it's gonna manifest you know, what they create in the world. In, in, in the world, what is the proper way to contextualize or understand that process playing out and its, its results? Because like we could be forever critical that things are imperfect, or we could also say things are never going to be perfect, but then if you accept both of those things, well, what is the optimal balance of perfect and imperfect that still promotes progress and, and moving forward, both on an individual level and on a collective societal level. And then the other part of that in terms of like the self-deception of wanting to delegate things that you should take responsibility for to others, what is the role of external, the externalization of our value hierarchies? So we, we've kind of talked about how we move through the world based on how we orient values internally and that dictates how we move, but we also project our value hierarchies onto the world and the same hierarchical organization process takes place. And so, for example, in the social and power domain, this seems to be, at least in part, one of the reasons why kings or leaders always emerge in, in, in human social organization. We always say that guy's the strongest, smartest, most capable, most honest, whatever, and for to whatever extent we desire coordination and not just simply individual action, we want that guy at the helm or that girl at the helm, right? Usually a guy for yep. matters of strength not, and that kind of stuff. Not for trying to divorce ourselves from the work, but because we believe with integrating our together that way, it enables us to do our individual work best. That's the sure. difference. That, that, that might be the, the, the initial... Uh, attitude towards it but let's say that guy does really well right he's an exceptional person and he ends up over uh over delivering for lack of a better term and people are trained to delegate more than they ought to to the system of social organization that has emerged right and so i guess what i'm saying is like 
that's inevitable. That's probably always going to happen. And I guess the, and, and perfect doesn't exist in any domain, any human domain, let's say. And so what is the attitude we should take to knowing that, that the, we will always foster the very things that we will always foster our own pitfalls and we will also always foster our own salvation, let's say, and they will always be ever present. And what is the best attitude to optimally balance the two toward striving forward? So have you ever been in that place? Like, do, do you do any music stuff, John? Like play instruments? Instruments, anything like that? You write that. I sing, I sing very poorly to my girlfriend. That's about it. <laughs> you're you're a writer correct trying yeah have you ever encountered that place where it's almost like you're channeling something you probably do it sometimes when you're speaking where it's like mm -hmm. oh, musicians typically do this well like you're doing improvisational stuff it's like am i playing the instrument or is the instrument playing me right it's like a form of almost like co-creating yeah definitely it's like you're both discovering and choosing at the same time okay that's one of the secrets of reality so if we frame reality as the purpose of it is ascension of us becoming more of us growing into being all that we're capable of being one of the big problems of the whole framing of this paradigm is we approach the problem like orphans we throw ourselves at it as if we're in this world of unknowns and we just have to carry our cross and suffer and make a bunch of mistakes and we never can attain it and like We'll discover little bits and pieces and shadows and glimmers and like maybe if we put in enough misery then we'll grow a couple percentage points right and like it seems like it's just loaded with trauma it's just loaded with impossibility like it's just it's loaded with a sensation of being terrifying and lonely and miserable right what if we didn't frame it as orphans what if we framed our entire worldview as sons what if we framed a religion as sonship to where we're created to be sons of a creator and a king to where we're being trained and led and disciplined and it's not up to us to always know the answer it's not up to us to have to frame the question or discover what the problem is in front of us where like we can integrate obedience in submission with aggression and doing the work where submission and obedience isn't passivity and being lazy where it actually is being a part of the training in the hardest possible way, way to be using your energy most effectively. If you frame the world that way, where I mean, first our dads in the real world were supposed to do that for us in physical reality, right? Train us in heart and competence and skills and raise us to be men who are capable of being good in the world, but then extrapolate that out to where that's a bridge and a metaphor to interpret reality of what relationship to God's supposed to be like that whole paradigm of all those questions changes. The ramifications of all those things changes. It's no longer this thing of like, let's divest ourselves accidentally into a competent man who's doing more of the work for us. Like, it's not possible. Nobody can help me ascend but me. I have to do the work of being a son. I have to submit to the training. I have to follow the path that's laid before me. Because like fatherhood, right? Fatherhood is co-creating. When a child is young, the child doesn't really have a full will yet. That will is kind of 
birthed in them as they grow. And during the early phases of that process, you have the dad telling the kid who the kid is. But the kid is also discovering his own desires of kind of like what he has born inside of him of who he's made to be, right? And those desires are like the key of who you're made to be. That passions and things that bring you life, they kind of elucidate what you're made for, what your gifts are. And so together, through the training of a dad who has the skills and the wisdom to know the journey better, and the son who's discovering and being true to himself of all the things he has inside, they are co-creating. They're making choices together of what is happening in that child's life. The dad tells the kid something, the kid chooses whether or not to believe it or what to do with it or how to do the work associated with it. The child tells the dad something of something he feels in his heart and his dad goes out and applies his wisdom of all the framing he knows of how to help his child become what his child dreams of. It's a collaborative effort. That effort can't be done by somebody that we delegate it to. If we frame that as the purpose of being, as the purpose of life, there is no point where humanity stagnates because we're always seeking that depth of centeredness of what we're made for inside with personal ownership and grounding it to something larger individually and then seeking to collaborate around us at scale to do that with others that are doing the same. If we frame our new culture that way, that's how I think we ascend as like a Kardashev type civilization. Yeah, and I, I think that's beautifully put. And I think that's, again, the, the notion of the state intermediating that relationship or, or disrupting it and displacing it, right? And where the father figure, both because of the state's involvement is less present, but also is less present physically, but also the, the role, the gravity, the, the influence the power even at the type of power of the father figure is greatly diminished by the elevation of the influence and involvement of the state in people's lives. But again, it goes back to, well, if that is the case, and if what you're saying is true, and I largely believe it, how does the state get so big? How do we lose the truth and the wisdom and the words you just spoke to such a degree that we break the sanctity of that relationship and replace it with a quote-unquote unholy relationship with the state. And, and you know, I want to add on to that, even though I think it opens up a whole another can, can of worms, but what is the element of, of, and the role of power in both of those relationships? Because it obviously exists in both, right? Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't know how I mean, you're doing on time. You let me know when you got to bail and we'll pick it, we'll... We'll pick it back up. We'll jump on the next one. Dude, yeah. we could talk for just months. That's why we're Dude, doing this, this. This is going to be such a long series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the state tries to infringe upon that paradigm in order to take hold of, take grasp of that power, right? That's why you we see do, that We do let it to some degree. Sorry to interrupt, but like it... Agreed. It, it gets created slowly by our own submission some, to some degree. Agreed. But let me stick in that paradigm. So the state tries to infringe upon that for consolidation of power. That's why you see them use language about family so much. Like we're in this together and like, like take care of each other. And like, there's all this different stuff in it that just, 
it just makes it feel like connotates that like they get to be our dad, our family. But going back to what we were saying, like there is no state. Like we are the state. And it goes back to the original problem, which is like I, Dallas Willard said this so good. He said the whole story of humanity is God trying to trust men with authority and power and men proving unworthy of it. It's we don't want to do the work. We have divorced ourselves from the process of integration. So religion stopped trying to integrate itself to science and truth and actual rationality. Science and truth stopped trying to pursue understanding things that was beyond what it could comprehend. It wants just to control it and think that rationality is enough, right? Like we don't have the humility. We stopped having the humility or really we did it in the Garden of Eden. And it's been a whole story of humanity of us trying to undo that decision of recognizing our proper role in the created order of being, worshiping that thing out in the chaos of the unknown, that truth and beauty larger than us and learning to be made into its image to incarnate it. That's the whole point. And if we could do that, then the state would never consolidate power. It's that not wanting to do the work. It's that not letting go of the, uh, the mandate to integrate and go out there and create and rule to be as God is. You know, When we neglect that, then it's just going to be our will gets weaker and it gets stolen against us by this spiritual war that's trying to destroy the heart of humanity with this giant state trying to be the god now. I wanna it's like the right. Garden of Eden all over again, except it's happening as the whole civilization. I want to delve into the relationship of power to that statement, but are you do you have the bail or what what's what's your time? We like? wanted can we do that on the next one? I want to read that quote by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, we there. Yeah, we can lead in with power when we fire up the next one. So if you want to call it there, we can. I'm going to read the intro to this and this little thing too. For C.S. Lewis, the nature of human desire, which nothing in this world can satisfy, suggests that we are created to experience infinite joy in something beyond this world. Furthermore, he proposes that if we remain faithful to the path of desire, steadfastly refusing all that fails to satisfy and holding fast to our deepest longing, we can trust it to lead us to life in all its fullness. Okay, here's the C.S. Lewis quote. It appeared to me that if a man diligently followed the desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them. He must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given in our present mode. I knew only too well how easily the longing accepts false objects and through what dark ways the pursuit of them leads us. But I also saw that the desire itself contains the corrective of all these errors. The only fatal error was to pretend that you had passed from desire to fruition, when in reality, you had found either nothing or desire itself, or the satisfaction of some different desire. The dialectic of desire faithfully followed would retrieve all mistakes, head you off from all false paths, 
and force you not to propound, but to live through a sort of ontological proof, i.e. doing the work. Mm. And it's work of co-creating. The desire's here, but it has that relationship here. Yeah. I think, I think we can uh, seal this one off by saying, you know, to what, especially this last topic we've been exploring, is it comes back to that notion of what you hold as the highest authority. And by authority, I mean a truth, a principle, a value, the thing that most guides and dictates and determines your behavior. And I think part of the reason why we find ourselves in this crisis of power being having been consolidated in the state and the relative diminution of the influence of religion is because at dismissing the enterprise and let's say perhaps largely because of the the inevitable imperfections of the institution of religion because of dismissing that we've lost we've lost the the pursuit and the enterprise of determining what the highest authority should be that leads to the best possible outcomes and leads to the the fulfillment of the capacity and potential of the human individual right and the, the expression of the divinity and the sovereignty of the individual. And it's been supplanted by then um, the thing that let's say most obviously or even perhaps rationally fills the void left by highest authority, which if we dismiss the authority of values and principles, then we're left with the most obvious authority, which is power. And as a result, lacking uh, lacking the former authority, we filled the void with the latter, and this is the world that we now contend with. And I think which is one a of world the of pure entropy. Yeah, and I think the reason why, and maybe these two notions can can spark the the next conversation. But my contention, I think, part of the definition of of truth has to be that it inevitably asserts itself because otherwise it's transient. It's not truth. And so when you form an individual or a tribe or a collective or a society or a civilization or a political apparatus or anything, that's the, the more you're incongruent with the truth, the, the worse the outcome will be because the friction will be destructive, as you were saying before, and not constructive. And so I think what we're seeing right now is the truth asserting itself in by the failure of having supplanted principles and values that are more closely aligned with the truth with ones that are far more of a departure from the truth and we're seeing how unsustainable that is in the breakdown of society political structures monetary systems all of that kind of stuff so let's dive into that one uh the next time we fire this up <laughs> yeah because without an objective truth and authority larger than us we're always going to default back to relativistic entropy which doesn't lead to ascension of being your civilization right and i think this is why truth and religion is often called light because light is not in conflict with darkness light just exists and darkness can't resist it. Light just by being erodes the nature of the dark. It's just that simple. 
it's not like it's trying to overtake the dark. It's not like it's aggressive. It's just when the light is there, darkness can't do. 